I invite you to turn with me to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Isaiah is roughly halfway. It's a big book. Jeremiah is the next one. Chapter 29. We're going to read this morning the first 14 verses of Jeremiah 29. Listen, this is God's Word. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare." For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me. And find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Congratulations. Today is your day. You're off to great places, you're off and away. You have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know, and you are the guy who will decide where to go. And will you succeed? Yes, you will indeed, 98 and three-quarter percent guaranteed. 
kids, you'll move mountains. So be your name Buxbaum or Bixby or Bray or Mordecai Ale Van Ellen O'Shea. You're off to great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting. So get on your way. I don't know that I ever imagined that I would read to you, following reading God's word, the words of Dr. Seuss and his great book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. But here we are. It is a book, of course, given often at graduation ceremonies or significant life transitions and moments, marking achievements and accomplishments, and letting you know you have the whole world of choices ahead of you. And by the end of the book, you are left inspired and uplifted, convinced you can go anywhere and do anything as you conquer the world. Well, if Christians don't give a copy of this book to their children, they might instead give a card or a mug or a plaque with Jeremiah 29, 11 on it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We are in the middle of a sermon series exploring Bible verses that are often misunderstood and therefore misapplied. It's a sermon series I'm calling, You Keep Using That Verse, I Do Not Think It Means What You Think It Means. And Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of those verses. It is, of course, used so often at graduations for individuals, but it's also used uh, corporately, collectively for our country in political speeches. I do not think it means what you think it means. Well, as we work through this, uh, as we work through this sermon series, and in each case, I've been reminding you that the way to get at what this verse does mean is by exploring its contexts. And here, we need to dive into the book of Jeremiah, uh, one with which we're not altogether that familiar, but I think I can say and summarize a few things that will help us get up to verse 11. Jeremiah is a prophet from God sent to the nation of Judah both before, during, and uh, immediately after the nation is conquered and taken into exile in Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar in roughly 586 B.C. And if you were to read the whole book and try to distill Jeremiah's entire message into three points, you'd discover this. First, it's a message of judgment, a message of impending judgment, and he's speaking from God, the very words of God to the people of God to remind them of God's promises to bring judgment on them in response to their disobedience to God's covenant demands on them. And specifically, the judgment is going to take the form of exile. They're going to be taken from the land, brought into a hostile land. And that judgment is largely a result of their idolatry, their apostasy. So the central, a significant part of Jeremiah's message is one of judgment. But there's another aspect to his message, and that is it's a message of hope. Because again, God, he reminds his people, in keeping his promises is not done with his people. 
Yes, he's bringing this judgment on them as a consequence for their sin, but no, this is not final judgment. He's not done with them. This is not the end of God's dealings with his people. It's not the end of the story of the nation because as the exile is punishment for sin, so the return or restoration is part of God's plan for them. So it's a message of judgment, it's a message of hope, and then throughout the book you have this kind of contest between prophets. Specifically, the question really becomes, to whom will God's people listen? Will they listen to Jeremiah who brings them the word of the Lord, or will they be duped and fooled by other men, other prophets who claim to be sent by the Lord but who clearly are not. Will they listen to the voice of God given through Jeremiah in contrast to their tendency to listen to words they actually want to hear, words communicated to them through the mouths of false prophets? The message they're hearing from those false prophets sounds better. It sounds more palatable, more desirable. That's what we want to believe. And woven through the book is this back and forth. They're not sent by God. Do not listen to them. Jeremiah has God's word. And so it's a message of uh, judgment, but also hope. And then this, this abiding stream of, of questions of who are God's people going to listen to. Jeremiah is both proclaiming the word of God and he's uh, through that interpreting for them their circumstances, making sense of how and why and where and for how long they are in this season of God's judgment. So he's reminding them of God's promises. God's promises are, remember, two-edged. They're promises of blessing for obedience. They're promises of cursing for disobedience. And again, all three of these lines, the judgment, the hope, and the contest, or who uh, should be the voice of authority, all three of these show up in this passage we've read. God's people are in exile as an act of God's judgment. In fact, God is using Babylon to accomplish his purposes to bring his people out of the land and to show his disfavor on them in that punishment for a time. And these are earned curses. The people of God deserve, they have forfeited God's blessings, they have earned these curses through their conduct. And the Lord speaking to them through Jeremiah, whose message is starkly different from the false prophets, the message from the Lord through Jeremiah is this. The exile is both well-deserved, but it's, it has a, a time limit on it. It's going to last for 70 years. But at the end of that 70 years, God is going to visit them, and he's going to restore them, and he's going to return them to the land. Well, as it turns out, among the exiles taken to Babylon are all these false prophets. They're telling the people what they want to hear. And just as a little aside, this isn't all uh, that different from a world in which we live where people want to hear what they want to hear, and they seek out the counselors 
and the voices of people who affirm what they wish to believe. And the message of these prophets in Babylon, speaking to the exiles, is this. They say to God's people, you know, God really wouldn't really punish his people. After all, he loves you. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is an illegitimate authority. So whatever you think about in terms of what the exile is, what we're doing here and not back in Jerusalem, uh, and, and after all that has happened that got us here, all the carnage and the wreckage, uh, this time is going to be brief. In fact, they were saying it'll be all over in less than two years. So really what you might do is almost think of this as a kind of extended family vacation, a road trip, if you will. We're here, it's going to be over shortly, and we're going to be returned back to the land. Now, that sounds far more desirable than having to stay in Babylon for 70 years. Again, if your sense of identity is very wrapped up in where you live in that land of promise, you understand that being expelled from the land is a a central feature in God's punishment for you. And so you can imagine people hearing, well, it's only going to be two years, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be overthrown, and you're all going to go home. And you could imagine there would be two responses based on or in following from that false information. One would be, well, if Nebuchadnezzar is going to fall in two years anyway, then let's help his demise. Let's go after him. Let's rise up. Alternatively... If this is going to be over in two years and it is a little unpleasant, then let's simply hunker down and wait this one out. Let's just hunker down and and get to our bunkers and we'll ride out this storm. Jeremiah hears the message of these false prophets, thinks through the implications, and sends back through this letter the message of God. Says to them, this is chapter 29, is functionally, it's a letter sent back, but it's a word of God through Jeremiah for those in exile to say this. No. No. Those prophets who are telling you this is all going to be over in a couple years are not sent by Yahweh. They are not telling you the truth. This is not what is right and true. Rather, you're going to be there for a while. You are going to be there for a while, so build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children, have your children married and have children so that you can increase and multiply. And then seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf, because in its welfare is or you will find your welfare. Again, that text, as you can imagine, as you may have known or heard, is often used to promote Christians' activity in the political sphere of life. Pray for and be involved in uh, the welfare of the city in which you live. Uh, What you don't often hear is this part about getting married and having children and marrying off your children so they can have children and growing and expanding, but we'll come back to that. 
But after all this, after this urging to uh, pray for, seek rather, the welfare of the city, uh, to pray to the Lord on its behalf, then finally comes our text. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare or peace and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Well, that's the background and that's the setting. Let's make a couple of observations, if we can, about this and invite you to just start thinking together with me about how uh, this verse 11 functions in its context. Notice, first of all, this is a complete overturning of Israel's expectations. All the things they are being told to do and to expect and to enjoy in Babylon are all the kinds of things they were told to do and expect and enjoy in the land, in the land of Israel. The blessings of building and enjoying homes, the blessings of fruitfulness in farming and in families, uh, the sense of settling in and living the good life. That was all part of God's package and his work for them, his desire for them to enjoy the blessings in the land of promise. And now he's telling them to pursue those blessings outside of the land. Meanwhile, the land is in ruins and in rubble. Again, the message of the false prophets was God really won't judge his people or his judgments will be light and momentary. And uh, those messages, that false word has real consequences. If Nebuchadnezzar is going to be overthrown, the temptation will be resist him and the authorities who are over you since they will not be over you for long. Or... Alternatively, retreat to some quiet place, hunker down, it'll all be over soon. Instead, and this is again a, a way of overturning expectations, God through Jeremiah is saying, you are going to be here for a while. You are going to be here for a while, but it will not be forever. So their call to pray for their captors and for Babylon is not really a call to political engagement in their system or because God has some very specific plan that through them he's going to evangelize Babylon or that God has a particular affection for Babylon or that he desires his people even to show their love for them or that he desires all of Babylon to be saved. God is using Babylon for a purpose to discipline his people. And now he tells his people to pray for them, not just because it's good for Babylon, but because it's going to be good for them in the welfare of the place where they live, they will find their welfare. The nation is being used by God as an instrument of judgment, but its power is limited. Its authority is circumscribed. What's good for Babylon, though, in this case, is going to be good for God's people because they're going to be there for a few generations because that's God's plan for them, that they'll be there for 70 years. And he wants them, now this starts to make a little more sense to us, he wants them to have children and grandchildren. He wants them to multiply and increase in number. 
Why? Because it's utterly consistent with how God has been dealing with his people from the beginning. Genesis 1 and 2, fill the earth and subdue it. Then to uh, Abraham, when he was still childless, you will have descendants like the stars of the sky, like the sand of the seashore. Or the opening lines of the book of Exodus to the people who were, uh, of the people who were still in slavery in Egypt. What do we hear? They were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied, grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. And here's what's happening now. God wants his nation, while in exile, to be built up in number. Not just that they would survive but that they would thrive. This is especially uh, powerful to think if you were to go reading through the whole book to realize that before the exile, back in chapter 16, God through Jeremiah had given the exact opposite advice. There he said, do not get married. Do not have children. Why? Because God's judgment was impending. It was imminent. It was almost there. And God is saying, I'm sparing you. Do not have children. Do not get married. Because judgment is coming. And those children will be destroyed. And rather than uh, and to spare you the grief, to spare you that additional sorrow, don't have children. But here, here, things are different. Now the exiles happen, now they are in Babylon, and God wants to give them that little message of hope. This season of judgment is not full or final. God will return and will visit you and will deliver you and return you to Jerusalem. And so now is the time for you to prepare for that return by being productive by settling in, by becoming, once again, a great nation. You see, the Lord's hope here is not that ultimately that Babylon will prosper, but that his people will be kept, that they will grow until he comes again and when he takes them from Babylon and brings them back to the promised land. Well, now you can start to see how there might be some ways of responding to uh, this text being used inappropriately or in the wrong places and times. You see, I said at the beginning that Jeremiah 29.11 is often used individually and sometimes even corporately. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29.11 is sometimes used individually as the Christian version of, oh, the places you'll go. Individually, for those who've reached a milestone like graduation or who are facing this wide open future. But here's the problem with that. Jeremiah is writing to a nation, not to any one person in the nation. Can we really take a national promise in the Old Testament and apply it to one graduating student we know and love? And then can we really promise to that recent graduate we know the Lord's plans for her? Or that the Lord's plans for her will include 
primarily or maybe even exclusively her welfare, her good, her peace, or that no evil will befall her, or that life will not be filled with hardship and suffering. Now, don't get me wrong, this might be our wish, our earnest desire for our children or our grandchildren, and it might be our desire to express this at a time of graduation. But it's not really what Jeremiah 29, 11 is trying to say. We can't promise what God doesn't promise for our children. We can't say with certainty, this is God's will for your life if it's not lined up with what God reveals in His will and His Word. Well, that's the individual challenge. There are at least two common corporate uses of Jeremiah 29. And the first is, again, like last week, it's sometimes applied directly to our nation. And this is, of course, where the politicians come in. Because if you think about it, it's great, isn't it? It's a message of optimism. There's a great future. There is hope. It's easy to sell that. It's compelling to say, vote for me as I usher in this kind of future in this land, as I lead the nation or have my part in the political machinery to make this part of what this country becomes. Following after God who promises this to us. If we but turn from our wicked ways, perhaps. But again, these are promises, easy to pitch and easy to believe. I will give you, I will lead you. Because after all, the Lord promises to you. Again, I just want to remind you that uh, we notice these are promises to God's people to the nation in exile. And these are promises made in the context of a relationship he has established with them, a kind of relationship he has established with no other geopolitical entity ever since. Well, if the promises of Jeremiah 29 are not for individuals or if they're not for our nation, what about for the church? After all, do not... Peter and the author of Hebrews and other places of Scripture, are we not told that we are exiles, that we're sojourners? And of course we are. Some of the New Testament writers draw an analogy between our present life in this world and the life of the people of God in Babylon. They draw this analogy to say, Things you know about life in exile are something like what it's like to live as a Christian in this world. And this is, of course, why it's so easy and so understandable why, it, why uh, we sometimes appropriate uh, Old Testament exile language and apply it to ourselves. But there are some limits on the extent of this analogy. Think about this. And then as you think about this, think about how this text may not necessarily apply the way you think it does. The Old Testament exile is God's punishment on His people for their disobedience in the context of the covenant. Your life on this earth is described with exile language 
but it is not divine punishment on you for your individual sin or for our corporate sin as a nation or as a church. The exile is God's punishment. You living in this world is not punishment. It is a function of our having been redeemed by Christ, of a world still under the power and dominion of sin and Satan, as we live in this world waiting for the return of Christ. So whatever you want to think about in using exile language for life in this world, it's not God's punishment. It's God's purpose. He's redeemed you out of this, but leaves you in it until Jesus comes back. But he's not angry with you. Here's the other challenge. We are not given a date for Christ's return. God's people in exile were given a very exact date. Some were saying two years, and we know, of course, through Jeremiah, God intended this to be for 70 years. We are not told when our period of exile, however we start to think of it, we're not told when that's going to be over. In other words, we're not told when Jesus is going to come back. But think about the problem Jeremiah is addressing. The false prophets are saying the end is coming soon. Therefore, we either hasten that or we simply bury ourselves in our basements. As others, many others have pointed out, don't we actually face the exact opposite problem? Don't so many of us live as if Jesus is never coming back, or at least maybe coming back, but way off into the future? That his return is so far off, we rarely think about it, or it rarely influences or shapes the way we live. So Jeremiah's message to the uh, people of God in exile to settle in and to build and to grow, uh, don't we actually sometimes, more often I think, need to hear the opposite of that? We are rather settled in to life in this world. We don't always hear the voice of God in his word telling us that our citizenship is not here but in heaven in Jesus Christ that we're to resist the impulses and the attractions of this world because they're actually waging war against our souls? Aren't we, in fact, more comfortable in this world? Jeremiah 29 is probably not the primary message we need to hear, even if it were to apply to us. But there's one more difference. There's one more reason why this doesn't work quite the way we sometimes think it does. You see, we have no experience of life in Jerusalem and then being placed in exile. Maybe the closest we get to that is our weekly gatherings of worship. This is our little moment in Jerusalem and we're going back into uh, the world of Babylon. But you can start to see the challenges that Christians face when they want to apply these verses uh, ripped out of the Bible and the Old Testament context. When on the one hand we want to say we are a Christian nation just needing to call, be called to repent. And on the other, no, we actually live among the Babylonians. But we have no experience of being taken as God's people from Jerusalem collectively and into the exile. 
and imagining that that to one day we are going to be returned to that. You see, our experience of life in Jerusalem, if it's captured here as best as it can be in this life, is encapsulated for us in Jesus Christ who is sitting in the new heaven and who is sitting in his heavenly temple waiting for the word of the Father to return to us and for us and to bring together heaven and earth that we might live with him forever. And see, it's then we come back through to Jeremiah 29 through Jesus that this starts to make some sense. Jesus is representative of Israel. If the exile is a picture of God's judgment and of his punishment, Jesus has perfected God's punishment and his judgment. He has taken on himself all the curses of our disobedience and he has completed in his own obedience and now gives us the blessings. God cares for his people. He has compassion on people. He sends his son fully and finally to put an end to all the sin that leads to the exile, that little picture in the Old Testament of what God's judgment looks like. But it's in the death and the resurrection of Jesus that Jesus is, in the words of Isaiah, cut off or exiled from the land of the living, but then restored to life and fellowship with the Father in his resurrection and in his ascension. He is, Jesus is the end time temple rebuilt in his resurrection. And he calls a people to hear his voice, the voice of the one true God. And he calls all nations and and peoples to himself and he builds this new kingdom in the power of his poured out Holy Spirit that we all may engage in true worship, enjoy all the blessings Jesus has earned for us. There are plenty of places in the Bible where we are told that because of the finished work of Jesus, because of the pending or impending return of Jesus, We have hope. We have a future. Jesus has entered into exile and has been restored and returned for us. Yes, we are concerned about the world in which we live, but we're not simply concerned in building up its welfare. We are interested and concerned that they might know the hope we have share in the future that is ours through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ who died, who lives again, and who reigns forever and who's coming back. That they, our neighbors, all those around us and everyone around the world might join in and be added to that great number of worshipers streaming in to the temple into the very presence of God through Jesus Christ, his son. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for these uh, vivid pictures in the Old Testament, life experiences, uh, biographies of your people, all pointing to and finding their fulfillment in your son. Thank you for his being banished and in his restoration, earning our salvation. Lord, we ask that you would make us faithful and fruitful citizens in this country and residents of our community, that we might honor you 
in our speech and conduct, and that through us you would add to the number of worshipers delighting in your presence, in your power, and in your saving grace in Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name and all God's people say together, Amen.